You are listening to On the Shoulders of Dwarves, a weekly podcast about role-playing games and role-playing gamers. On the Shoulders of Dwarves. Hello and welcome to another episode of On the Shoulders of Dwarves, a weekly podcast about role-playing games and the people who play them. My name is Ran Aviram. And my name is Uri Lifshitz. Hello! And today we have a reward for you. But it's not loot. It's not a plus one sword. It's not a lot of money. It's something else. And it is this something else that we want to elaborate upon. Because non-monetary reward and non-weaponized rewards, anything that is beyond loot, has a lot, a lot of power. Sometimes it is a lot more powerful than the plus one sword in the game. Um, whether you're playing D&D or Fate or whatever, Sentinel Comics, the role-playing game, which is something that I'm, I've just started playing. And it's a superhero game where there's no, there's no loot in any case. So no, oh, my God. <laughs> so non-loot reward is, of course, very, very important there. So we want to talk a bit about why it is important and want to talk a lot about what types of non-loot rewards we can use and uh, why. I bet a lot of our listeners are currently still scratching their head and thinking, but what kind of non-loot rewards are there? I mean, uh, fine, I can get gold pieces, I can get art and gems and other things which I can convert to gold pieces, and I can get magical items which I can either convert to gold pieces or use them myself to get more bonuses. What else is there, God? What else is there? And the answer is quite a lot, if we think about it. The very basic non-loot reward may include things like lands and title. If your party has finished a quest for the king or queen, they may very well, while expecting a lot of gold, get a title of baron, which comes with its own crop of land. Why not? You can also get some sort of an association as a reward. Okay, you have completed this task, and now you are officially part of our guild, mm. or group, or faction, or whatever it is that they're part of. In a superhero game, it may be something like you are now considered a legal superhero as far as it concerns the national law enforcement, you know, the shields of the world. You are sort of like our agent, uh, we can use you, and it is now official. In uh, The One Ring... And that kind of game, you can get a patron, someone who will now be able to patronize you and give you, <laughs> and give you a place to stay. And you can use his name as some sort of uh, a leverage when you approach other people. Um, this is association. Indeed. And let me focus on what you said, a place to live. In many of the games I ran, one of the most promising rewards was a place to stay. A baron or a local government would say, oh, you did this amazing service for us. Here's a house. Here's an apartment. Here's some place to call your own. I love that because it cements the loyalties of the group. As long as we're staying in this house, in this place, we are associated mm. with this group who gave this to us. And it's convenient. It's convenient for everyone. And it's a lot of fun. Um, in Critical Role, they really like getting a house because then they can spend an entire episode, I mean, like four hours, getting to know the house and selecting rooms for themselves and getting to know the staff and uh, accessorizing and stuff like that. Landscaping. I spent entire sessions just drawing out the little house 
and where's the dojo and where do we keep the dog house with our little blink dog and it's loads of fun other non-loot rewards may include simply renown how well you are known in this kingdom how often do you appear in the newspaper as superheroes mm. this is an awesome awesome reward which can be manifested in the game in very interesting ways you enter the pub huh the local bard looks at you and goes ha the heroes of the realm drinks are on us and it's an amazing sensation to be acknowledged as a hero of the realm i would take that over a few gold pieces any time of the day all the examples are in-game examples but we are not limited to that also all the examples are non-mechanical but they can be part of the game mechanic if you have one or if not you can add new mechanics if you want renown to be more active in your game as a component you can simply add a renown mechanism simply pick a number between 1 and 10 and let the players have it you are currently renowned level 5 you have reach renown level six you get extra benefits just because we're talking about non-loot reward doesn't mean non-mechanical rewards in a superhero game just being acknowledged as the hero of the city after defeating an evil or saving a lot of citizens that's great renown that, that might be a reward that the players are aiming for being acknowledged for their heroic acts yeah we're gonna talk later in this episode about specifically what players can do toward these kind of rewards and how they can use them. Let's talk a bit about one of the best kinds of uh, reward you can give a player, but it is, I think, something that is rarely ever used because it's the something personal. It's the thing that is really only for this specific character. And I think that most systems fail to acknowledge this because systems are, by definition, generic. They are about every group that is playing this game but this reward is about your group that is playing this game it's about giving your ranger some sort of a reward that helps her with her tea ceremony that she is doing as part of a non-system non um rules related event or even if it is part of the rules like for example in earth dawn there's a weekly ceremony actually it's even a daily ceremony that you if every character needs to do to restore karma the something personal there can be something that helps you with this ceremony or even just acknowledging this ceremony is something that is important to your character and a new tea set a better equipped tea set a new kinds of tea these are all rewards that are that, that are powerful for this specific person you don't need to go very far like other system even in dnd a cleric should spend time praying Giving something special for that prayer, I don't know, a prayer mat with your God's logo on it or whatever, <laughs> can, can be a, a really nice touch. And the last sort of non-loot reward is narrative power. It is giving the player an ability to influence the game, to say something like, this fact is now correct, or this fact is now different. One of the classic types of this kind of rewards is uh, that I use is saying, well, if you come from land X, you have a lot of power in saying what land X is like. 
what are the axions behave like, what do they like, what sort of uh, fashion they wear, and all of the details, also including stuff like maybe how the government works, and perhaps what sort of tools and weapons they use, and various stuff, various things about this excellent. And that gives you a lot of power, and it makes you the player, because you now feel a lot more comfortable with your uh, land, um, to act more as if you are coming from X-Land, and not just, I'm an elf ranger. No, you're an elf of a specific land, of a specific people. And because you have more power and more responsibility to decide what is going on there, this sort of pushes you into being more Axian than just elf. And it's interesting to note that when you say more power and more responsibility, you mean the player. The player has the power and responsibility to create this magical land from which their character came. In my previous Pathfinder game, we couldn't do that a lot because my character comes from Chelyax, and Chelyax is a very well-established lore of how they're governed and etc., etc., but my GM simply said, okay, Uri, I know that this is something you really like, so I'm going to give you narrative power over your specific family. You come from a family down in the south where things are not as clearly well defined as in the rest of Chelyax, so you can play around with whatever you want in this specific small county, in this specific noble family that you have. So it's interesting to know that even if you are playing in a very well-established location or kingdom, you can still give that narrative power to your players. And players, don't be afraid to suggest taking that responsibility. Now, the question arises, what can we do with non-treasure reward in our game? How can we use this to enhance our gaming experience? And some things immediately come to mind. For once, you can use this for character development. Like Iran mentioned, if I'm giving some sort of a reward, something personal for a specific character, this would immediately enhance that specific side of that character. Also, like we've mentioned, if my party gets a place to live or is associated with a certain group, we, each and every player of us, has to decide how do they feel about that. So we have instant character development just by introducing a reward beyond loot into our game. Yes, something that influences us, that is important to us, and now we have to react to it. The other side of this coin is that this automatically flesh out the setting. Yes. If the king gives you some sort of title, there is a king. There's a system of governments here. And what kind of titles are there in this kingdom? And do they come with lands or not? So we get immediately drawn inside and connecting the characters to the setting, and also the players, making them more ingrained in our setting and how it works. These are all major benefits that we can get simply by introducing non-treasure rewards. And it also gives players a chance to expand on what interests them in our setting. If I'm part of a guild, and I'm really starting to flesh out this guild and who's in it and who's the guild master and what's going on, that is a great signal for a GM that this is something that interests me. This is something that I want to see more of. I want to interact with this more. Or if I'm not, this is a very strong signal that I don't want this. Maybe I just want my plus five sword. 
well, obviously I want a plus five sword. That goes without saying. But maybe I also want that my plus five sword is named the Bunny Killer. And it's from this long line of family of people who slay bunnies. And they are far and wide the best bunny slayers in the kingdom. And I wish to be worthy of such a glorious title. And of course, when we introduce such rewards, we are not shifting the mechanical game balance that we have in our games. But we still allow a great sense of accomplishment to our players, which is a win-win. Because I get to let my players feel happy and accomplished, and I don't have to constantly worry about game balance. Because if I give too much gold pieces, they can get better equipment. If I give too much magical equipment, the challenge rating goes up. And I don't want to mess around with the mechanics and the balance. So all of these are excellent ways of rewarding without breaking game balance. And in some game systems, this is really important. So we have talked about the rewards themselves. We have talked about how this rewards us as game masters. Haha, <laughs> see what I did there? <laughs> but let's talk for a moment about the players. There are two very important aspects of these rewards when it comes to players. And the first one is these rewards unless actually used, are meaningless. So I would like to suggest to all players listening to take any kind of reward which is not loot and really use it, ingrain it in your character and in your game. You have a title, make sure that everyone use it. You are not Roland the Destroyer, you are Sir Roland the Destroyer. And if someone is not using it, correct them or challenge them to a duel. If you have land, for some reason, define it. Do something with it. Uh, write down what kind of serfs are actually tending to your land. Uh, you have become part of the Stonecutters Guild. Excellent. Make sure to send them rock samples from the dungeons you're in. Keep a journal of interesting rocks and where you have encountered them. You as a player, go and read on Wikipedia about different kinds of rock and rock formation and use technical jargon when you're describing something as your character. Again, these rewards, unless used, are meaningless. But one of the best things that you can do is you can signal your GM what are the rewards that you might enjoy getting. How? Simple. Establish it as one of your character goals. My character really wants to get a title. This could be a whole overarching plot lines of how you are getting your title. Or express your interest in specific elements. Oh, what guilds are there in town? Oh, stonecutters, that's really interesting. I think I'm going to go and talk with some of the stonecutter guild members. You are signaling your GM that this is something that interests you and you would like to get more of. And this is an excellent way to point the game toward the directions which you would find interesting and more enjoyable. I want to focus on the personal rewards I've mentioned before and explain how as a player you can do something with it. What Uri just said about signaling to GM is very important, but there's another thing that can really help your GM with rewarding you, as the, and that is establishing patterns. Just do a thing and do it consistently and say that this is the thing that you do. For example, your tea ceremony. You have a tea ceremony. 
or for example, you are part of a specific line of monster killers and you are very devoted to this line of monster killers and you talk about it and you bring mentions of previous monster killers and you talk about them. Or after every fight or after every encounter with uh, a royalty or something, you do a thing for reasons of your own or because you were raised this way or because you think that it will give you luck or because you believe in something or whatever. Have something that you are doing. Give the GM the opportunity to reward you by focusing on that thing and enhancing it. So I'll give an example. One of the simplest rewards that uh, GM can give someone who is from a line of monster hunters is not a plus five sword. It's the plus one dagger of Shropshig the um, Slayer, who was the founder <laughs> of this um, line of monster slayers. Because it was his. Because it was his, it's more important. It's not necessarily more powerful. Maybe it is. Maybe it's really good against uh, a specific type of monster that rarely comes up in your game. But that is the monster that Shropshig killed or was killed by or whatever. And against them, it has a plus five or whatever. But otherwise, it's just a plus one dagger. Or m maybe even barely that. It's just a dagger that belongs to someone important. Important because your player thinks they are important, decided, maybe even invented their importance. This will be such a big deal for them because now they need to prove to themselves that they are worthy of carrying this dagger. Uh, despite you have done nothing of the sort, you just gave them the dagger and said that it's from Shropshig. And think about what will happen when they dis realize that this is actually not the real dagger. And it was given to them by uh, a con man. How, what great motivation to run after that con man and chase them down and do something bad to them probably. I've already talked about the daily tea ceremony, but for example, if your character's face is horribly mutilated by something and she wears a mask, that mask is a vital important item to your game that probably the player mentions um, here and there. Well, like for example, um, I smile under the mask or something. I don't know exactly what she's saying about her character, but she's using the mask in play. That mask can be enhanced. It's not necessarily that you replace the mask. Maybe the character likes this mask. This is an important part of her character. But maybe you can, as a reward, give the mask some new ability. It might not be magical. It might be something along the lines of you now realize how to use the mask in a different way. For example, to be more intimidating, uh, just by the way that you hold it, just by the way that you present yourself. This can be a type of a reward that is completely like an amulet of plus one intimidation. Only instead of getting something new, you are enhancing something that already exists and that the player is already attached to. And it's a completely natural uh, progression of what already is inside the story instead of just giving an amulet that comes out of nowhere. And finally, something new. Um, like, for example, you've just defeated an enemy and you take that enemy's weapon. That can be very personal if the enemy was your nemesis and the weapon was used to kill your mother, for example. Or if that weapon was used to try and behead you, or maybe even that weapon was used to cut off your hand 
and it can be amazing if that weapon specifically is some sort of prosthetic that you put on your hand and that's what the enemy was using and now you're using it instead and now you are assuming that weapon and use it for good or whatever it can be a powerful moment and it can be a lot more powerful than a plus two uh, i don't know um, dagger again it's a plus two hook and it's the nemesis hook and now it's your hook and now you will do things with it that, that she never did uh, or, or whatever it's really up to how you interpret it all of these points um, should really be in the head of both players and gms the gms should think about how to reward players about stuff and the players should have that stuff create the stuff so the gm can reward you on it so Iran, how would you summarize this non-loot reward thing I think it's one of the most important things in role-playing games. I don't think it's an exaggeration because there are two very important aspects to rewards. First, they give motivation. They make the players, not the characters, the players do stuff because uh, they want the reward. We have an episode about this, episode 27, Slaps and Bennies, in which we discuss this specific thing, external motivation and how to use it. And so, very important. But on the other part, rewards are in-game. The motivation is for the player, but the reward itself is a sort of a fiction device that exists inside the world, and therefore can and should be an integral part of the world. Never hand over a plus one sword. It should always have some sort of decoration and a bit of history and maybe a name, and perhaps some sort of unique twist to it. It's plus one, but also it can heal you once per month. for some reason, because something that happened to it, because the way it was forged, whatever. Magical weapons are not created in factories, unless you are playing in Eberron, where they exactly are created in factories. <laughs> And that's the whole point of it. That's the point of Eberron, one of the many points of Eberron. So if you want to play for that, awesome. But if you don't want to play for that, don't make them in factories. Each of them is unique up to the point of perhaps even well, probably not the healing potion, but anything that is an actual reward, that is an actual, uh, that you want to have an effect on the game should come from the game world in some way and be connected to it. And that is not completely up to GGM. The GM, especially if the, he gave the players the ability to decide on various things and create various aspects of the world, can ask them, how is this thing related to your character which is something that happens all the time in dungeon world in dungeon world when you create a magic item it's very likely that it will be created as a collaboration between gm and player when they discuss this and ask each other questions about where it came from etc i agree 100 on top of that non-loot rewards are a great way to create engagement character development enhancing the setting and discover things which are of interest to gm and players And it's a tool that should be used constantly. I think we've said everything there is ever to be said about rewards, and to reward ourselves, we will now take the load off. This world is carried on the shoulders of the wars. This is the part of the show in which we talk about role-playing games and our personal lives. Uri, what have you been doing in the past week or two? Well, the bad news is that my latest session got cancelled because mm. of pandemic and things which are terrible. But my other two gaming sessions were not cancelled. I had an excellent D&D 5th edition game. Where this is a new campaign which I'm running. And it's interesting because we actually had a conversation about the tone of the game 
and where do we want to take it and how do we want to proceed. This is a new original campaign which I am running and simultaneously writing as a sandbox adventure. Mm. Basically, whatever my players are doing is what goes into the adventure sure. as the main plot. Sure. And anything that they're encountering will become random encounters inside that adventure. It's called uh, The Village of Evercom, and I like it a lot. It immediately became one of my favorite locales, simply by existing in a game. My other gaming session was, as, <laughs> as has become so often of late, a playtest for a new game and game system which I'm working on. It's a, it's a game in Hebrew because it's discussed the days of the Maccabim. It's uh, about 180 BC here in the kingdom of Judea. Basically, you play rebels fighting against the Hellenistic conquerors of Israel. Mm. And the mechanic is actually based on spinning dreidels. In the Hebrew holiday of Hanukkah, Hanukkah. Where, where Hanukkah, yes, where we basically celebrate the fact that we've survived the... Uh, yet another terrible event for the Jewish people, we spin dreidels, and the dreidel has letters on them. There's four letters. And that this is, in my mind, this basically corresponds to rolling a d4. So I created an entire mechanic that revolves around spinning the dreidel, and each one of the four results can lend you a success, a failure, a, an unintentional success or an unintentional failure. And actually, the mechanics works and after playtesting it I can I can say it works very well to create the, the game and the tension. The problem is what currently stopping me from moving this forward is that the setting is a bit unclear for people. Mm. So I'm gonna need to add a, a few pages describing the setting of how this land actually felt about 2000 years ago. And because I want to be historically accurate, this is taking a really long time. <laughs> I've started playing this week Sentinel Comics RPG, uh, the starter kit, which is one of the best starter kits I've ever seen in my entire life, and I'm a connoisseur. Really? Yes, yes, it's really, really good. It's also available digitally, but it's really good in the physical uh, format, although, of course, we're playing it in Roll20. It's a role-playing game about um, heroes, superheroes, but specifically Sentinel Comics, which is the fictionary comic behind Sentinels of the Multiverse, uh, a card game, a successful and very fun card game that we really like. We've been playing it for uh, many years, and so we, we, we jumped on the opportunity to play the starter kit for the role-playing game, which is very similar to the card game in many ways mechanically. It has some clever and interesting new stuff, but I don't have a lot to say about it yet. We've only just started playing it. I am curious to see if the clever stuff is good enough in creating the superhero genre. We'll wait and see. I'll come back with more thoughts about it in the future. Okay, I haven't been listening to you because I'm ordering the Sentinel comic uh, starter kit. Mm -hmm. um, is it a good game regardless of the fact that it's a good starter kit? It's, um, I don't know a lot about the full game. Uh, I haven't yet read it or bought the, the, the core book. But the starter kit is a lot. It's a lot. It has six pre-generated characters coming in the form of 
like booklets, you know, with the, everything you need to know about the character and even the rules for the game. And, and uh, they are all unique and, and different from each other because they are the core characters of the uh, card game as well. Uh, so they were unique and different from each other even then, mechanically. Um, and six adventures, six issues, each is supposed to be about a session, but we, we only managed to play half of uh, the first one during the session, so uh, not enough time. Although our sessions are pretty short because we are playing uh, online and we don't have the attention span for more than two hours. And, uh, and also, you know, the booklet with the rules. And that's, they are quite straightforward and they seem to work. Excellent. And that's it. If you want to talk with us, you, yes, the listener, yes, at home or wherever you are, probably at home, you know, there's a pandemic. So send an email to show at dwarfcast.net. Uh, we are also available on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Dwarf Podcast. We have been Uri and Iran, and that's all from us. Um, next time, we'll talk about... It's <laughs> <laughs> shared under Creative Commons by Attribution Non-Commercial 4. Intro and outro are by the Cliché Dio. And you can email us at show at dwarfcast.net. On the shoulders of dwarves. This is so obvious now that we've finished this episode that I think there's nothing left, left to... Uh,